For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. A long trip, a big test, and a lot of questions for the Stanford Cardinal this week. So let's break it down. It's the TreeCast with Troy Clarity. It is Thursday, September the 12th, 2019. Glad you're here with us. I'm indeed Troy Clarity, the host of this show. Happy to have you along for the ride. Stanford football hitting the road and heading to a place that they do not normally visit. The state of Florida. They're heading to Central Florida, Orlando, as a matter of fact, to take on the UCF Golden Knights. That's a Saturday afternoon kickoff, 12.30 p.m. Pacific, 3.30 p.m. Eastern. Should be an interesting one, and we're looking forward to covering every single angle possible of that game with help from a couple of our special guests. Stanford special teams coach Pete Alomar will drop by and he will give us an absolutely thorough assessment of how things have gone for Stanford special teams this year and some of the things that they look at when they determine success or failure from game to game. So Pete Alomar, interesting conversation with him coming up in a few minutes and uh, looking forward to chatting with my man, Mike Yam, Pac-12 Network studio host, the face of the Pac-12 Network. He co-hosts Inside Pac-12 Football with my other man, Yogi Roth. Uh, those two get it going every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. on the Pac-12 Network. And Mike and I go back years upon years upon years, back when we worked in some place uh, called Bristol, Connecticut. So Mike Yan will talk a little Stanford with him as well as try to place some larger things in the Pac-12 in focus after just two weeks of regular season play. So Pete Alomar and Mike Yam are special guests, and you're also going to hear from Stanford quarterback K.J. Costello as well. Uh, follow me up on Twitter, at Troy Clarity, at Troy Clarity, the last, year, the last name rather, is spelled C-L-A-R-D-Y. UCF obviously not going to be the same team that came to Stanford four years ago and got beaten 31-7. to Took the Cardinal a while uh, to get going in that game, but once they did, it was uh, not really in doubt. Bryce Love, a 93-yard touchdown catch and run, uh, the big play of that game. Now, since then, UCF's fortunes have changed dramatically. Golden Knights have won 24 straight regular season games. And they've won 27 of their last 28. Meanwhile, Stanford coming off of a tough, tough loss at USC last week. Cardinal going out to a 17-3 lead, but then being outscored by the Trojans 45-3 down the stretch. in a uh, 42-3, rather, down the stretch in a 45-20 loss for the Cardinal last week in L.A. So a lot to break down, a lot to talk about. But as usual on the TreeCast, we will whittle it all down to three things you need to know about Stanford football right now. Let's start with... And of course, it is the injury latest for the Stanford Cardinal. First, some good news. K.J. Costello, Cardinal quarterback, is back. Cleared after the hit to the head 
he took against Northwestern in week one, did not play against USC last week. KJ Costello is back. We'll hear from him in a couple of minutes. Now the not-so-good news. Linebacker Jacob Magnum Farrar is doubtful. Ricky Miazon, fellow inside linebacker, will be out for an extended period. That's not good for that position unit. But here's the really bad news. Foster Sorrell, you might remember he came out late in the third quarter at USC. Doubtful for this week's game against UCF, the Stanford right tackle. And the Stanford left tackle, who originally was diagnosed with an injury that was going to cost him just a month, perhaps, of the season, has opted to have season-ending surgery instead. So Walker Little out for the year, and Foster Sorrell doubtful for this week. And that throws the offensive line completely into flux. David Shaw and how those injuries have affected the Cardinal depth chart on the offensive line. Seeing our too deep, there are a lot of oars in there. Um, if I could fit the word maybe in there, there'd be some maybes in there too. Uh, it's not gamesmanship, those that know me. <clears throat> we have to practice and find out. The positive of, about this year as opposed to last year is that we have depth, in particular on the offensive line. The negative is that depth is young. Um, but um, we're excited about our young offensive linemen. We think they have uh, talent and, and a lot of desire. Um, so uh, Walter, Walter played really well last, last week at left tackle. Not perfect, but played really well, played really hard. He's only going to grow and improve. Um, we have more young guys that are going to get some playing time. And it's not by any stretch <clears throat> for us to say, hey, you know what, this is just going to roll those guys out there. Like, no, there's a reason why we recruited them. Good football players. Uh, and we're trying to put the best team out there to help us win. Yeah, a lot of oars. Uh, for the Stanford offensive line on the depth chart. Let's go through them. At left tackle, you've got Walter Rouse with Jake Hornerbrook or Branson Bragg as the backups. By the way, all three of those young men are true freshmen. Haven't even attended a class at Stanford yet, as the Cardinal, of course, are on the quarter system. At left guard, Devery Hamilton, then Barrett Miller backing him up. Barrett Miller, also a true freshman, played a little bit at USC. Center, Drew Dahlman starting, and then Drake Nugent backing him up. Nugent's another true freshman. At right guard, you have Henry Haddis starting there, or perhaps Barrett Miller. And at right tackle, you have Henry Haddis, or Branson Bragg, or Barrett Miller. You'll remember in the second half and much of the fourth quarter last week at USC, it was uh, Miller at right guard and Haddis at right tackle. By the way, Dylan Powell, the senior who started and played 19 games and started three, Injured, nowhere to be found on the depth chart. Now, David Shaw bullish on his young guys. You heard the bite just a couple moments ago. But quite honestly, what else is he supposed to say? Oh, my God, we're about to run out of a bunch of true freshmen out there on, on a big-time stage and nationally televised game, and they might not be ready. What are they going to do? Ah, no, no, he's not going to say that. He can't express concerns publicly about those guys. I can. Tough test coming up for UCF. Which brings us to UCF Golden Knights are 2-0 on the year. They beat Florida A&M 62-0 in their opener a couple weeks ago and then beat Lane Kiffin's Florida Atlantic squad on the road 48-14. UCF is top six in total offense and defense. The only team in Division I in FBS to boast such high rankings in both of the total offense and defensive categories. And when it comes to what UCF is really all about on both sides of the football, they are fast and aggressive. 
Don't believe me? Hear David Shaw's thoughts. They are fast. They're very fast. They're very confident. They're very aggressive. They do a lot on the defensive side. Um, a lot of different coverages, different structures up front, different blitzes. But they all do it full speed. Offensively, they go fast, right? They're getting up, they're snapping the ball, getting up, snapping the ball, getting up, snapping the ball, and you got to try to keep up. Got to try to keep up. You got to communicate very quickly. Um, you got to get lined up. We've played fast teams before, but I don't know that we've played anybody that's that goes this fast in multiple years. Um, this will be the quickest tempo team we've played in years. That's David Shaw, and UCF has four running backs with over 100 yards on the ground already. Uh, their quarterbacks have thrown eight touchdowns versus zero interceptions. One of those quarterbacks is Brandon Winbush. You might remember him from uh, Notre Dame. As of right now, UCF has uh, not uh, disclosed their starting quarterback for this game. Now, could the Stanford defense beat UCF's most stern test yet? Well, depends. Stanford plays like the first 80 minutes of the season? Yes. But if the Stanford defense plays like they did the final 40 minutes against USC, look out. And finally, in our list of three things you need to know about Stanford football right now, here is number three. Stanford off to the Sunshine State, a place that they have not played in very often throughout the course of Cardinal football history, which of course spans over 100 years. This is just the fourth time that Stanford has played a football game in Florida. And the first regular season game in Stanford's football history in the Sunshine State. The other three meetings, the 1986 Gator Bowl, the 1993 Blockbuster Bowl, and the 2011 Orange Bowl. God, that, that was a fun, fun night in Miami. I will take that night with me to the grave. David Shaw, I thought, had some intriguing thoughts on the importance of this program playing in Florida, where, let's face it, football means a little bit. It's nice to be there um, and be there live, and as important as anything, have our coaches have a chance to go out Friday night, um, both in Florida and Georgia and other places down in the southeast, um, to go watch the guys play. And um, So that's, that's as important as playing in the state of Florida, our guys being able to be uh, on the East Coast in season and go check on counselors, which not a lot of the people are doing, but we're checking on counselors, checking on grades, getting test scores, etc. cetera. Um, but that's as important as, as being able to play in Florida. Yeah, D uh, yeah, David Shaw there with his thoughts on Stanford playing in Florida and the importance there. Look, Stanford football is a national brand. They can't just stay in state because of the admissions. They have to go nationwide. So you heard what's on the docket for some of the assistant coaches and perhaps David Shaw himself while the team is in Florida. Take that time in the southeast to spread out and, and take a look, take a closer look at their guys. So I'm sure that it will be a productive trip from that standpoint for the coaches. I'm sure they're hoping it's a victorious road trip as well. Those are three things. We started with the uh, injury news and we started with the good news that KJ Costello is back. Costello back in the mix, of course, after missing last week's game at USC. Now, that's the good news. As mentioned, the not-so-good news is that Costello is going to be looking at an entirely different offensive line than the one that he had uh, when he uh, left the game against Northwestern a couple of weeks ago. This is not a new situation for him. As Stanford trotted out eight different combinations at the offensive line last year in a starting role. Given that, here's a moment of K.J. Costello's uh, media availability from this week. And KJ starts by telling us how he can help 
an unsettled offensive line. When I watch the defenses, we go down the field, you know, four, five, six, seven plus plays into a drive, pass rush is, you know, depleted. A lot of things are depleted in terms of taking the onus off of our offensive line. Um, so we got to get drives going. We got to get three to, to seven snaps into that first drive to slow the pass rush down. So I got to get the ball out early, pick up first downs, run the ball effectively, uh, get that first first down um, on that third down when they bring in a crazy blitz. That's normally how defenses go. You know, they bring crazy blitzes until you can show that you can uh, start start executing on those downs. So we got to get deep into drives and find rhythms. And um, you know, I can do that. I can help them out by getting the ball out quick and diagnosing defense and get the ball in our playmakers' hands. We've, I saw in that first game they did a great job. Um, and second game, pretty good too. Um, you know, Connor scored on that screen, and there's a couple other times could just boom, just get it out there and let them make plays. That time on the sidelines during the game, what was that experience like for you? What were some of the things that uh, you and Davis were, were communicating about throughout? Yeah, well, number one, it was, a, it was a pretty cool experience just in terms of being that locked into the scheme to everything we're doing, being on the sideline, like having a different view of the game. I remember obviously freshman year I was on the sideline, but it was just you're kind of imagining what it, the play, how the play played out, et cetera. But my eyes were looking at the exact right things in terms of what Davis was seeing, maybe what he wasn't seeing. Um, you know, so it was really – it was really different just in terms of eye discipline, like what exactly I was looking at from the sideline based on the play. You know, me and Jack West were there getting the plays, so we kind of had the play ahead of time. They broke the huddle. We kind of watched the whole thing unfold. So it was, a, it was a cool vantage point in terms of seeing the game from the sideline. I mean, with Davis, you know, it was, it was uh, basically being his blind eye, you know, like a lot of things, a lot of times in this offense, you got to get off the primary and work towards something you have no idea what it looks like at the time. So early on, a lot of guys, including myself, everyone wants to stay working at what they see, you know, from the initial part of the snap. So we were trying to be his eyes for the rest of the progression, kind of tell him what that looked like. A moment of K.J. Costello's availability from earlier in the week, and certainly his presence will be a tremendous step in the right direction. But can it make up for both offensive tackles on the shelf and true freshmen, multiple true freshmen perhaps on the line at any given moment? We'll see. We'll see, but certainly good to have K.J. Costello back under center and uh, calling the shots for uh, Stanford on the field. Stanford special teams has had an up-and-down season so far this year. Did some nice things against USC, a 60-yard kickoff return by uh, Connor Weddington uh, to help Stanford up, uh, out early in that game against USC, forcing a fumble on a kickoff later on in the first half. Some not-so-good things, as the Cardinal have missed three kicks already this year. After Tuesday's practice, I caught up with Stanford special teams coach Pete Alomar, who is going to give us the inside scoop on basically anything you need and want to know about Cardinal special teams. The first thing we discussed were his views on the pros and the cons from a special teams perspective at USC last week. We've, we've got to clean up our field goal protection, 100%. Um, our punter only punted one time, but he, but he was consistent with his hitting. He was inconsistent in week one. We're continuing to work with, with multiple punters to see what, what's the best way for us to punt the football, create field position for the defense. I thought our kick returns were solid, but yet when you look back at it, there's some places in there where you go, you know what, there was more. You know, how, if we do this, if we're better, you know, Coach Shaw mentioned it today, alignment and technique. And, and if you look at us and, and where we're at, 
you know, alignment and technique from a return standpoint is ball side leverage, being in correct leverage on your man, finding the, being on the right man, right? Just the fundamental things that, that allow you to execute at a high level. I thought our returners ran well. Um, and in both, I thought, you know, we had one punt return opportunity. We turned that into 15 yards. Um, did a good job getting back on the ball, squaring it up. I think our guys on the Shark team did a good job. Um, you know, they, they rugbyed, and it was something they had not shown. But, um, you know, our guys did a good job getting on guys on the return. And, uh, and we were able to, to generate, you know, and, and with a punt return team, you want to get at least one first down on your return. We were able to get 15 yards, you know, and that's a, that's a plus return. Um, and the KOR stuff, you know, we had one pass midfield. That's, that's a game changer for you when, when you can do something like that. You knock a ball out on kickoff. You know, that's something you preach. That's, a, that's stealing, that's stealing a, a possession. So we were able to get a ball out, which is awesome. Hopefully we'll continue to, to find ways to do that and create uh, turnovers because for us those are those are game what we call game changer plays. Mixed bag overall for for special teams and yeah. but but when you look at things overall when you evaluate things are there any uh, statistical benchmarks that you look at and say hey we need to to, to hit this in this oh, yeah. category in order to determine success from game to game? Well, we have we have we have acceptable and optimum goals in everything we do. Okay, for instance. You know, your goal on kickoff is to have them start on their side of the 25, okay? Our goal is to start outside the 25. Because what, what's, and where's that benchmark? Well, a, a fair caught kickoff goes to the 25 yard line. All right, so we're going to catch a ball in the field of play and not, and not fair catch it. Then we need, we're, we're trying to get beyond that. From a punting standpoint, you want to win the punting duel, okay? And the punting duel, when you look at it in the game, is this our net versus their net. When we traded punts, at the end of the day, were we gaining yards or were we losing yards with these guys? So if we net 40 and they net 32, and we did the, we, we each punted five times, that's 40 yards of field position that exchanged somewhere during the game. So that's what you're looking at. And, and you know, if you go back, you look at game one, that, no, you know, definitely not. You look at game two, you know, he's st we're still not where we want to be because we, we give up a return. You know, so there's some things we're working on. We gave up 14 yards on a 45-yard punt. You don't want to do that, and and we shouldn't. Have. We had some guys that that stopped, didn't didn't lost because, you know, again, things you try to do. And you, you know, you're, we're young, we're learning, we're gonna grow, and and uh, you know, I'm really pleased with a lot of the young kids have really made some big strides in just two games. And we'll continue to work and we'll continue to get better and let's see where we're at when it's all when it all shakes out. How much is place kicking a mental game? Uh, you know what, I, I think there's a huge component to any any swing in any sport, whether it be baseball, tennis, golf, uh, football. There you can there's so many similarities between them. You know, and, and there's a mental component. There's obviously a physical component too, but there's a definite mental component to it. You know, I think we've got one of the best mental kickers in the game. Um, Jet Toner is, is is a cool customer. You know, and if you if you look at his year this year, he's had one ball that was a yard outside the left post. He struck it really well though, but all his other balls, the two balls that get a hand on it, those are all well struck balls that are on the flight line. You know, and uh, but it's a big part of the game, and and uh, you know, thing with Jet is Jet's, Jet Jet gets that he's confident, he's very calm, stays within what he knows his what he can control, 
Got a last question for Pete Almar, the special teams coach for Stanford football as the Cardinal. Get on the plane and head to UCF, wonderful Orlando, Florida in September. Much is going to be made of the heat and the humidity. Does the heat and the humidity have any effect on the kicking game? Obviously, if you're high and dry, that means the ball tends to go longer. Does it have a, a reverse effect when you're in a, a humid climate such as uh, Central Florida? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's the thought, like you just said, high and dry. You know, if I'm if I'm kicking in some of the cities, you know, you go down into the Arizona area, you go to Utah, go to Colorado. Those are obviously, you know. Uh, positive places you know I, I always kid our guys I said man if I was a punter or a kicker I'd go go to the school that's at 7,000 feet you know make your life easy um, you know when you get down to sea level and you get in the humidity you're gonna you're gonna drop a couple yards you know I think what you got to do is you know for us we don't think any differently what we'll do is go out and pregame kind of gauge what we do every week which is gauge our range with our kicker you know and and feel out what that is because that's going to change not only uh, week to week, depending on on humidity and, and elevation. But sometimes, man, I'm just stroking the ball really well. I've, I don't have, a, you know, my leg feels great. Sometimes that leg maybe just is, it doesn't feel quite as good. So one week you might be going, hey, we're we're good from 55 this way and 52 that way, and the next week you might be, hey, you know what, we got a little breeze. It's it's we're at altitude, we're at this, and we adjust and we say, okay, here's where we know where we have to go. So we know as an offensive staff and as a as a special teams. At what point are we, what, where do we have to get to? And that yard line varies from week to week. But you lose a little bit. You're going to lose a little bit on that. And you know what? And, and you know, if it rains and the ball gets wet, it's going to get a little heavier and you're, it's not going to go as far. And if it doesn't rain, yeah, there's a little humidity. The air's a little thicker. You know, you're going to lose two to three yards on a kickoff probably to that. If there's no breeze, you know, all things being equal. Right. All right, last thing I got for you here, a big game obviously coming up against UCF. Your initial thoughts from your perspective uh, of the Golden Knights. Fast speed and aggression seem to be the two uh, buzzwords for those guys. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, um, they're, they're fast. Um, they, they play aggressive, an aggressive brand of football. but And, and that's good. Good for, good for them, good for us. Um, I think some of the things that, that uh, that'll be fun to watch is just, you know, the challenge of, of trying to match up and, and, and personnel-wise with them in, in our phases of the, of the kicking game. Um, you know, both two very good returners, a good kick returner, a good punt returner, both have had success, you know, with the long ball. We're going to have to do a great job getting the ball down the field. And then it starts with, starts with, you know, our kickers and our punters with our hang time, our distance, and our direction. And then we're going to have to, you know, we're, we'll be aggressive in our coverage, you know. And then what a great challenge. I mean, you, you know, you, you want to you play good football teams. And you play good football teams, you get a chance to beat good football teams. And you beat good football teams, that's where you really get a chance to grow. And for us, this is a great time to grow. Let's get on the plane and let's go play. Couldn't have said it better myself. Coach, thanks a bunch. Best of luck. Safe travels here and back. And we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks so much. Really intriguing uh, content there from uh, Pete Almer. I appreciate him uh, taking some time out and joining us here on the TreeCast. Uh, interesting to note, Orlando weather on Saturday. As I say this, the forecast for Saturday calls for rain showers and a high of 85 in the Orlando area. And, of course, it's going to be super muggy and super humid. They're actually watching a storm in the Caribbean, as I say this on Thursday afternoon, that could end up being a tropical storm. Now, it might have very little effect on Central Florida, if any, but potentially something to keep in mind. Uh, it will likely rain at least a little bit during the game on Saturday. But a lot of different components that go into special teams – and, of course, field position is such a huge part of what Stanford does and what David Shaw believes in. He loves winning games with defense and field position.
And I appreciate Pete Almar taking the time to uh, give us uh, the inside scoop on how the coaches evaluate things from that standpoint and uh, some things they need to improve on going forward. Field goal protection appears to be number one uh, in that respect. So we're two weeks into the regular season in uh, college football and uh, Pac-12, as usual, with a lot of great results and a lot of interesting and head-scratching results as well. And if you like Pac-12 football, chances are pretty good. You know our next guest. You see him all the time on the Pac-12 network. Uh, these days is the host of Inside Pac-12 Football on the Pac-12 Network and also Pac-12 Final Score and many of the Pac-12 Network's studio shows. And he's an all-around good dude as well. Here is our conversation with the Pac-12 Network's Mike Yam. All right, Mike, we're a couple of weeks into the regular season. Three, if you want to count the opener between Arizona and Hawaii in week zero. But it's kind of an odd time, it seems, in, in, in the conference right now with some interesting results, some surprising results maybe in some respects. So it's, it's kind of like, gee, what do I believe? What do I need to wait and see what the hype is all about here? Uh, what are some of the things that have popped out to you after the first couple weeks of the regular season up and down the conference? Yeah, I think it's a really good point when you talk about kind of this national perception and the narrative right now with the conference. I think what's interesting to me is the fact through I look at week three as kind of this crucial week week for the year for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, you know, essentially like the last week of non-conference play. First two weeks of the season, we'll count week zero as part of week one, right? <laughs> so the first two weeks of the season, the league has played two top 25 opponents, and they're one and one in those games. So Nebraska was one of those teams. CU gets that win. Oregon obviously loses, and you could go either way. I mean, the Ducks probably should have won that football game against Auburn, and Colorado probably should have lost. Now, all things being equal, I think most fans that are pulling for the conference as a whole would say, wish we had the, the Oregon win. But nonetheless, still important to get those top 25 victories. The week three, there are three top 25 opponents. So I look at it as a huge test. Stanford right now obviously is banged up going across the country. You know all about this Cardinal squad. And, and they're, I think they're going to have a little bit of an uphill battle uh, with Foster and, and Walker not being able to play in that particular matchup. Great to have KJ in the fold. But I think ASU is going to be in for it right now unless we see some sort of inspired play from their offensive line. I know they're 2-0 right now. Michigan State. East Lansing, that's a different deal with a really young offensive line. It's funny, I'm thinking about top 25 opponents, Stanford O-line issues, ASU some O-line issues as well. So, um, you know, to me, I, I think just really such a big time week for the league. Certainly is. And uh, Stanford, of course, in that mix, getting on the plane, heading out to Central Florida. Mixed bag, tough win over Northwestern. And a loss in which USC just runs away and hides. What's your overall take on, on the Cardinals so far two, two games in? I think they got one of the more important wins in week one against a Northwestern squad that obviously was playing in the Big Ten championship game a year ago. And they gutted that one out. And I give Davis uh, David Shaw a lot of credit because to get a win like that when KJ goes down and what should have been a targeting call and you throw in Davis Mills into the mix – um, you know, the what of the storm is, is not always easy, especially against a talented opponent that's coming from a P5 um, conference. So I, I think that's big time. The SC game, I don't know what to make of it from a Stanford perspective. I mean, they're up in that game. They had opportunities to close, missed opportunities for them. Um, and, and I think SC is a really good football team. And I know some people are saying, let's, let's pump the brakes for a second. Let's wait and see what happens with this Trojans team over the next couple of weeks. But, you know, I, I thought Stanford's defense in week one was, was pretty good. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're going to be good 
most of the season, right? And I, I felt like they played pretty well um, at times in that first half. And I just think that air raid and what uh, Keaton Slovis was able to accomplish was was big time. So I, I like SC, but when I'm trying to evaluate a Stanford squad, you know this. I mean, their non-con is so difficult. Um, these first few weeks of the season are really hard uh, to navigate it. So I think the book is still open because they, they're just not 100% healthy at this point. The one thing I will say that I really want to see, I, and they've gotten some pretty good contributions on the perimeter, which I know was a big question mark for them. Stanford, especially with some of the issues now on offensive line, like how do you how do you establish a a real force in that backfield and a run game? And to me, that's going to be the biggest question now over the next couple of weeks. Not a lot happens with Stanford football, positively or negatively, sure. without the offensive line uh, either doing what it needs to do or not quite doing yeah. uh, what it needs to do. Now that being said, Pac-12 North. Still very much, it seems, up for grabs. You would think that Oregon and Washington will be at the top, although maybe Washington may be in a bit of some some question after their result against Cal last week. Uh, Stanford could be in the mix. We'll yeah. find out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Pac-12 North should still be a very intriguing division. Where do you see Stanford uh, perhaps stacking up at this point amongst the other teams in the division? I almost feel like, I don't know if you feel like this, but it's like you put you write down every team on a piece of paper throw it in a hat pick one and go oh i can see that happening like i can see them winning this division i think stanford's right in it i think we'll get a better sense after this week um because it's such a tough test because we'll see this offensive line and how it shapes up against a really good night squad i think that'll help look if you said to me who the favorite right now it's tough. I, I still want to lean towards Oregon because they handled business in week two and they, they dominated a team that they should have dominated. And I saw flashes in week one where I felt like they were a really, really good football team. So there's a part of me that still wants to lean towards the Ducks. I think Washington State fans, if they're listening, they're like, what about us? We're 2-0. and well, I think Friday night's game is a, is a huge test for them going on the road, matching up against the Dana Holgerson squad. Like To me, I think we, we can really evaluate Mike Leach's squad after this week. Um, you're right, Washington, for whatever reason, it seems like Cal's kind of got their number. Um, you know, I've been saying this for a couple months. I, I didn't know if Cal, and I didn't think Cal could win the division, but I felt like Cal was going to decide who not only won the North, but would win potentially the Pac-12 conference as a whole. Um, I didn't see them on a Sunday morning going up there and, <laughs> and taking care of business in, in Seattle um, like they did, especially after the result in Berkeley a year ago. Um, I don't know. You, you, we could have that late night conversation. I will say this, and, and I don't know you know, if, how you watch that game. It's probably the first time in 10 years I've been able to sit in a bed on a Saturday night and watch college football. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it was actually, actually kind of nice. Well, I got back to my hotel around 1230 in L.A. last week, and I yeah. opened up my phone 515 to get to the airport. And I was scrolling through Twitter, and it's was like, oh, wait, wait, they won? Yeah. Holy smokes. So given that, time to panic in Seattle? Time to exult in Berkeley? How should each of those particular uh, programs be approaching things this week yeah. in your mind? I think that's a, it's a great thing for Cal and Justin Wilcox's squad. I, I want to see it sustained, though. I mean, they, they won this game a year ago, right? So, like, how if you're Wilcox, how do you use this as a building block? Some teams, we are, we're always worried about how do you handle adversity. I think sometimes the question needs to be asked, how do you handle winning? Because not every team mentally is prepared for that. 
Uh, I thought it was pretty cool, like a badass kind of statement from Evan Weaver before the game, guaranteeing the victory, um, having an opportunity to go up there, be defensive player of the week in the conference, national defensive player mm-hmm. of of the of the week, based off of 18 tackles, 14 solo. It just he was he was terrific in that game. So when you can talk and back it up, that's that's big time. I think Cal fans. You saw these flashes from Chase Garbers. Yogi Roth was doing this breakdown on Inside Pac-12 football the other day, and I thought he did a really good job explaining just how Chase, for the lack of credit that I think the perception has been around this offense and, and how that's kind of holding the team back, he made the critical throws in, in, that, in that fourth quarter to win that football game for him. Uh, Brown coming out of the backfield, I think, is kind of that Patrick Laird 2.0. It seems like they have a force there. But... The biggest question for me now is if you're Chris Peterson, it's going back to the drawing board. You, you can't let – the challenge was let Chase Garbers beat us, and guess what? He did. I think the bigger issue for me, and some people will look to the to the defense, and look, they're replacing a lot of guys. But, you know, Troy, like you sit there and you watch this game, and it's missed opportunities in the red zone. You settle for three points when you could have had a touchdown. That would have put you up. Instead, you're up – or you're down 17-16 late in that game – and just six drops by those wide receivers. Like you can't win football games. The margin is so small against one of the better defenses in this conference. And I would make an argument: Cal secondary is one of the better ones in the entire country. Like that mark. Like you have to be. You, you can't have six drops, and you can't not execute in the red zone. And and for me, that was the biggest issue that I had from a Washington perspective. It, it's amazing. We talk about some of the craziness that has been up and down the conference sure. with, with, with Washington and Cal and, and, and Oregon and Stanford and, and, and UCLA. They've, they've had a bit of a rough start. But, but one team seems to have kind of avoided all of that madness for the most part so far this year. The Utah Utes picked to do some pretty big things by a lot of folks. Lee Corso picked to be in the playoff. I almost fell off my couch when that happened. Utah kind of flying above the radar a little bit, it seems, here at this point. Well, you were surprised that someone at ESPN had decided that there could be a team for the Pac-12 that would make the college football playoff. I think most of us would fall out of our chair uh, in, in, that, in a situation like that. Look, you, you look at this defense, it's littered with NFL talent. I think everyone understands that that's a strength of this ball club. The beauty of what you're seeing right now is they have one of the best running backs in the entire country in Zach Moss, and Tyler Huntley has has shown he can he can make some big time plays. Now, um, you know they should handle business obviously in week three, and they should coast, and and hopefully Kyle can go to a couple of his backups um, and get ready for week four and five and and kind of the home stretch of the season. But they have played nearly flawless football through these first two weeks. I mean, week two, five for five in the red zone. Um, no turnovers, one penalty. And if I'm not mistaken, they don't have a turnover in their first two games. Like that, that that's winning football. That's big-time football. I, I think the biggest question that I have for them, I, there's really two. I, I think they're good enough to get to the college football playoff and, and win the Pac-12 conference and, and be a team in that conversation. Their defense is elite. I, and there's no doubt in my mind. It's, I don't know if it's Alabama-Clemson. I would put them as elite teams, but maybe they get the notch above because I don't know if there's many teams in the entire country that have the depth that Alabama and Clemson have on that side of the football. And you saw that a couple of years ago on display when Washington was in the CFP against Alabama. Starter for starter, like it, it, there wasn't this dramatic, you know, people want to talk about this dramatic difference between the two rosters. Like, no, 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 that's not actually what, what it was. It's that second and third weight of a players. There's no drop off. Uh, for Alabama as they go down their depth chart for UW at that time, 
there was, and I think CP's done a great job building this team and making sure that they're bigger in the trenches. Um, well, I was up there a couple weeks ago. Brock Heward happened to be at the practice that I was at, and he was like, I've never seen a team, a Washington team, look like this physically. So that's definitely a great sign. But Utah's got the horses, and to me, the other biggest question is, do they have enough vertical explosive plays. Um, Evan Moore and I were doing final score uh, in week two, actually week one and two, and I'm, I'm trying to blank. I'm blanking on the number right now, but it seems appropriate. One of the things that he had asked research on our way to the set was how many explosives for, for Utah in the game. Now, I think I guess technically the explosive plays are 15 inside our office for whatever reason. Most of our coaches, most of our analysts go, hey, 20 or more yards. And they actually had a few. I think it was like somewhere along the lines of like the low double digits, which was a pretty good number for him. And a lot of it was came um, in the air off of Tyler Huntley's arm, which is a great sign. But can they consistently make the plays downfield to put them in that category of CFP worthy, I think is the biggest question right now. A couple more things for you yeah. here, and I'm sure you've been asked this ad nauseum over the last couple of years. I'll add my question to the pile here sure. as well. <laughs> your overall take and your overall perception of the narrative surrounding the Pac-12 football product on the national scale. Oh boy, uh, how much time <laughs> you got? Uh, you know, you're right. I mean, this is a major topic of conversation, and I, I can't get over how disappointed. Like you and I, we have some East Coast roots. We, we spent some time together at ESPN, and when we were there, I never understood this idea of East Coast bias. Like I had heard of it, I didn't believe it really. I mean, I grew up in Northern New Jersey, went to school in New York City, was kind of in the Northeast my whole life before I moved out to Pac-12 Network in 2012 when we launched. And within two weeks of being in San Francisco at our studios, I'm like, oh, there's an East Coast bias? I know what it is. <laughs> and it is definitely a real thing. Um, look, this league is judged nationally on the results top to bottom in the conference. And I don't think that's necessarily fair because I think when we look at the bot or when we judge the SEC, the Big Ten, the ACC, Big 12, we're always talking about their best teams. And for whatever reason, when Arizona loses in week zero to Hawaii, it's like, oh, it's an indictment on the, on the Pac-12. No, it's probably just an indictment on Arizona losing in that week. And Oregon State is is obviously rebuilding with Jonathan Smith. Like, I don't, I don't think enough national analyst look at the league at the top and the parity in this league like i would say top six like the, you know top six or seven teams in this league are as good as any of the top six in any other league um and i don't know how many other leagues can go that deep where you're confident that team six seven maybe even eight can compete with teams one, two, and three. I mean, we just saw it with Cal. Like, Cal is not a top four team, I don't think, right now in this conference, but they just beat a team that I would consider in the top three in Washington. David Shaw's talked about this all the time, just the parity and the depth, and I don't think the league gets nearly enough credit. Right now, we're looking at five teams for a third consecutive week that are in the top 25. We flip-flop Stanford and SC um, coming off of uh, of the win for the Trojans in week number two. Like, the league is is okay in my mind it's not like defcon 2 like everyone continues to talk about and it's it is a little frustrating i don't i mean you're you're in this league too and you're calling games all the time for pac-12 network like you get it like you know what people are saying right now and i just i don't think it's fair someone else had said this to me i was working with ryan leaf the other day and ryan had made the point about teams in the pac-12 not beating other um power five opponents and 
I think there's something to it. Although if you ask Michigan State last year, you know, what happens in, in the desert, they would probably have a different answer than some of the other teams. But my biggest gripe is, well, why don't some of those teams on the East Coast come out West? Like consistently, the teams on the West Coast have to go East. Like what happened a couple of years ago when Stanford, we were just talking about this before we started recording, right? 9 a.m. kickoff at Northwestern, slow start. Christian McCaffrey plays okay in that game. They lose it. Well, return favor, we just saw that a couple weeks ago. We saw what happened there. When, when If teams were willing to come out to the West Coast more consistently, I think there'd be a dramatic shift in some of these results, and it's unfortunate. Hell, even like Washington-Auburn last year, like that's not a neutral site game. No, no. Like That's not even remotely close to a neutral site game. So it's just really frustrating to me as a guy that's been covering this league the last eight years, and I'm sure you probably have the same frustrations that I, that I do. Like It just doesn't seem right. And this league, and it is what it is, like the league at the end of the day still needs to come up with wins, less excuses, mm-hmm. and, and and that will cure some of the issues that, that the conference has right now. It's all about W's. It still amazes me that LSU is even deigning to come out to UCLA. I believe that's either 2021 or 20 uh, or, or next year as well. But the fact is LSU is coming this way. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah. that, that's obviously big news in that respect. As, as we wrap this up here, uh, back to the Cardinal for a moment, uh, for Stanford to stay in the Pac-12 North race and to be able to be in position to be able to, to play for a Pac-12 championship like they have so many times over the past few years, what's going to have to happen for the Cardinal to be in that position uh, by the end of November? Unfortunately, it's not the NFL where you can make some trades yeah. and, and fill in some holes where you lack some depth. You and I were talking about this, right? Like they have one of the best quarterbacks in the entire country. Like, I get it. Justin Herbert's there. He could be the first or second quarterback taken off the board. Not too much further down. We're going to hear KJ Costello's name out there. I cannot wait to see him on the football field against UCF. I can't wait to see him the entire season. He has got these special, unique qualities about him. Like, when when he was able to take over that starting job, it's amazing just how different the offense looked with him there. There's this moxie and charisma, and he is really this natural-born leader. Like, you, everyone encounters that. It's not just a football thing. Like, everyone who works and has a job, there's the guy in the office or the woman in the office who people just gravitate towards, and they have these natural leadership qualities. And I think it's clear... From a skill perspective, KJ can ball, but I think from a leadership perspective, people want to follow him. And I think that's really unique about uh, about a guy like KJ Costello. He is going to have to find another level, though. And I think the really good thing that we've seen through these first two weeks is we know that they, they lost some guys because of graduation in the NFL in terms of those perimeter threats. But um, Wilson, uh, Wennington, like it, it seems like it's going to be okay on the perimeter. I really want to see what happens with this running game. And and most importantly, like, what does David do in terms of that offensive line? Like, what are the decisions that need to be made here? I know we can throw that phrase all the time in football, next man up. But at some point, this this offensive line has been banged up. And I guess if there is a silver lining with all this, Stanford has become used to, at least because of last year, having to deal with injuries up front. And to me, maybe there is something that that staff can can point to and lean on from a year ago that will help them this season. But to compete for a Pac-12 championship right now, it's the running game and it's the offensive line. Like, those are my two biggest concerns. Should be intriguing. Hopefully it's fun. Fun and intriguing, two adjectives yeah. that, that describe <laughs> inside Pac-12 football Tuesday evenings at 6 p.m. on the Pac-12 network. And Mike Yam uh, hosts that along with many of the Pac-12 uh, network studio shows as well. Mike, 
Thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. Keep Evan Moore in line, will you? Yeah, whenever he's on final score, <laughs> we're keeping Evan in in check on Saturday night. He is he is actually a blast to work with, and um, I, I think Stanford fans certainly remember uh, him in a big way. And, and he's as classy as you think he's going to. Well, you might not think he's actually classy, but he is actually uh, in person. So it's a blast working with him, and, and I appreciate you even having me on. Good stuff from a good dude, Mike Yam. As uh, I mentioned, we go back uh, to our respective days back in Bristol, Connecticut, working for ESPN. And he said, look, he didn't believe in the East Coast bias when he was back there, but uh, certainly uh, felt it as soon as he moved out this way to this side of the country uh, onto the West Coast. And, yeah, you know what? I, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You know, everyone's, you know, jumping on the ACC. And, look, they do have the defending national champion in Clemson. That's nice. Congratulations to them on that. But there was only one other team in the ACC ranked in the end-of-season AP poll. And that team was Syracuse. Did you see what Syracuse did last week? Ooh. But our thanks to uh, Mike Yam for breaking it down as far as uh, Stanford football is concerned and uh, Pac-12 football is concerned as well. Our final feature of the TreeCast for this week, or at least this episode of it anyway, is a new feature for this year. It's called They Said It, kind of our quote of the week feature, which brings us to Colby Parkinson, Stanford tight end, who was a key cog in Stanford's offensive efforts against USC last week and will continue to be a big part of what Stanford aims to do this season offensively. Kobe Parkinson looks forward to going to UCF and showing the Golden Knights a little something that, that they might not be used to. I think it'll be a great matchup for us, a great opportunity to, um, uh, to show uh, uh, what Stanford's all about, show them a different style of football than they're used to. I mean, the conference they're in is a lot of spread, uh, a lot of uh, air raid type of offense. So it'll be, it'll be cool to, to kind of give them some West Coast power. That's Kobe Parkinson hoping that the Cardinals show UCF a little West Coast power on this portion of the show, on this edition of They Said It. So, look, there's a lot on the line for Stanford here and a lot of questions on the line for the Cardinal. Can it weather the storm? Can it weather the elements? Can it handle a long road trip? Can the offensive line with a bunch of true freshmen uh, playing in roles that they have not been asked to play in as of yet, uh, can they get a good push? And can they protect K.J. Costello? Can the defense play much, 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 much better than it did against USC, especially in the final 40 minutes of that game, and not do the things that David Shaw said that caused them to lose, quote, the structural integrity of the defense? That's not a good thing, by the way. All these things need to fall in Stanford's favor against a UCF team that, look, They've had this game circled on their calendar for a long, long time. A Power 5 team coming to their crib on national TV? Are you kidding me? UCF's going to be fired up for this game on Saturday. Hopefully Stanford can go in there and uh, douse those flames and come back with a W. And no matter what happens, win or lose for the Cardinal, we'll break it down for you next week on the TreeCast. Slight change to the posting schedule. Uh, I am not making the trip out to Orlando. And, or actually because, I have a Pac-12 Network 
soccer doubleheader coming up on Sunday against Cal. So that means that the next TreeCast will come your way uh, either on Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday morning. We'll get you David Shaw's latest uh, thoughts after his uh, weekly press conference. So the next TreeCast will come your way either on Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday morning. Be on the lookout for that. The best way that you can be ahead of the game and to make sure that you have the next TreeCast already hot and fresh and waiting for you is to subscribe. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, subscribe via Google, uh, Google Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your favorite podcast from, chances are pretty good you can get the TreeCast with Troy Clarity from there. And don't just subscribe, rate and review the show. I certainly appreciate the fantastic ratings and the fantastic reviews that the show has received, all from people I don't know. That's pretty cool. But uh, thank you so much for uh, those of you who have uh, rated and reviewed the shows. If you haven't, jump on board. If you like the show, tell the world. If you don't like the show, tell me, and I'll do what I can to make it better uh, in your mind. Thanks again to our guests, Stanford Special Teams coach Pete Alomar and the Pac-12 Network's Mike Yam. And we will see you next time and break down what we see and get David Shaw's latest reaction after Stanford faces UCF. Looking forward to it. Don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet. That's all there is to it. We'll talk to you next time on the TreeCast with Troy Clary. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.